Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he joined in, saying, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break it down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of these builders. So we built the wall, writes Nehemiah, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sembalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild this wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word through Nehemiah. Father, I just earnestly pray this morning, by your spirit, you would encourage us where we need encouragement. Father, but challenge us where we need challenging. I think this morning, this particular sermon is going to have a little more of a challenging hint to it. Father, help us be open to your word, what it has to say to us. Help us listen. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand. Because your word is great and powerful. May it penetrate our very lives this morning in Jesus' name. The title of this morning's sermon is uh, Let's Build Something Together. And specifically, since the one thing we have in common is Jesus uh, and this church, and we can't add on to Jesus, that's called heresy, right? Then uh, we're going to talk about building this church this morning. Not for the sake of making the name of Sunrise big or so we'll feel good about what we belong to, but to introduce more people and came in to Jesus and help these people grow not by guilt, by shame, by good works, or any other cheap imitation, but by the free gift of grace that he offers us. 
which is basically our mission here at Sunrise. So we, we build together so that we be able to glorify God and what He does because as He does it, He does the rare, the unlikely, the impossible, the way He intended to through the hands and the feet He calls the body of Christ. You and I. That's how He wants to do it. That's how He wants to be glorified. That's how He wants to work. So this morning... Through Nehemiah and his fellow builders, we receive a picture of what it often looks like to build something together for God and why prayer is so important to that. So let's take a closer look at uh, Team Nehemiah and let's take note of the journey of building something together. First thing that happens is you generally receive a task and a team. Your task may feel indirect at times totally devoid of purpose or meaning, but it is crucial to the mission. Crucial to the mission. God's mission for the nation of Judah, as Nehemiah writes here, while they were doing time in Babylon for disobedience, was to realize that they were wrong. They had disobeyed God. And to turn back to Him to love and worship Him again. Pretty simple mission. Sounds like my Saturday. All right, Realizing I'm wrong, turning back to God to worship Him again. It's like life. With this mission in mind, while Nehemiah was still far off living in Persia, he receives the task of rebuilding the outer walls of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. Why walls? Why rebuild walls? Doesn't that sound like the kind of thing that a lot of churches do? Right? Build massive structures to show how great and powerful they are. Have you seen my narthex yet? How do giant walls and the creation of them aid in the worship of God? Well, when you built walls, you were giving the first clear sign that you were building a city. When you and I think of city, we think of lots of crowded people in a tight space producing culture out the wazoo. Right? That's what we think when we think of city. We think of it in terms of numbers of people crammed together. But the Hebrew word for city, from the first time in history when one is built... By Cain in Genesis chapter 4, it literally means a fortified settlement. So a city is born when walls go up. So Nehemiah's task is the first step. It's the first step in establishing this as a place where people can repopulate and worship God again in the city that was called by his name. So... This is his little part. It reminds me of a story I once heard about a traveler in the Middle Ages who visited a city where many stonecutters were working. Approaching several, he asked them the same question. What are you doing? The first stonecutter he met replied, I'm cutting stone. You know, it's dull work, but it puts food on the table. Second guy he approached replied, I'm the best stonecutter in the land. Look at the smoothness of this stone and how perfect its edges are. A third, working, simply looked up and said, I'm building a cathedral. Anyone can be a greeter. Anyone can serve in children's ministry. Anyone can spend an hour working with at-risk youth. Anyone can even preach. But you are introducing people to Jesus as they walk towards those doors. 
and through them. That's what you're doing. You are introducing children to the God who created them and to the words he desires to speak to them. Much bigger. You are displaying to at-risk youth the characteristics of meekness, of patience, of love that can only be Jesus of Nazareth. And you are preaching in a way that people encounter the fingerprints of Jesus and the grace of Christ all over his word. Okay, that part's mostly me, but you get the point. All right, we, we, we have something that seems insignificant, but it's so much greater in the mission and to the glory of God. So we each receive a task, and you also get placed on a team. Virtually none of the stuff of following Jesus is a solo project. I just read uh, Ephesians 4 and how we're supposed to use our gifts for the building up of one another till we're brought to all maturity to equip one another. Did the Oschlagers come down here to build a church? Heck no. (laughs) I came down here, God called me down here to teach and to shepherd. And even then, with these tasks, he's put me on a team of elders who share the burden of shepherding as God shepherds us. And our team is just a part of the body of gifted people through whom he wants to build a church. You go back and read earlier here, in Nehemiah chapter 3, you would see the teams into which God's people were organized for this great work. Eliashib, the high priest, and his team of priests reconstruct the sheep gate. And the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. Sheep gate, fish gate, it goes on and on with every phylum until Jerusalem can double as a zoo, need be. All right, there's all kinds of gates you receive a task, you get a team, and then you get to work. Second thing, you get to work. Look with me in verse 6 of Nehemiah 4. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, so they're getting, making progress, for the people had a mind to work. This word for mind, lave, the Hebrew understanding of lave was that it was the seat of the emotions, the mind, and the will. In other words, all of who they are was longing to work. Now, many of us have a gag reflex when we hear that. Whoa, uh, that's not my typical week. But let this fact sink in, friends. We were made to work. You and I were made to work. Even when the world was perfect, neither sin nor decay, even then man worked, man and woman worked. Look with me in Genesis 2, pre-fall. Genesis 2, 8, 7, 8 and 9, and verse 15. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life there was, uh, in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden, to, here's the purpose for putting him there, to work it and keep it. Which this idea completely undermined the ancient Near Eastern view, worldview at this time about work. And it, pro- it might undermine your worldview about work as well, right? Back then it was the same. That worldview said work is a necessary means to an end. A. Or B, it was to get a wage. But in God's economy, clocking out of your job 
does not also mean clocking out of work. No. Clocking out of work would have been unheard of. And this word to work or to cultivate, we saw in Genesis 2, implies a care or a protection. You don't clock out of something you care for, that you want to protect. But some people take that approach when it comes to building God's church. The church exists to serve me and fill me because I've already worked. The irony is that being filled, being served does happen, but only as you work for others. Paul says in Acts, quoting Jesus, is more blessed to give than to receive. Because it's in the giving that you receive. So you receive a task and a team. You finally get to work. And then you encounter opposition. And that's what we primarily read about here in Nehemiah 4, right? Opposition to the big work. This is interesting. What you have is you have this guy named Sambalat who's coming from the north. You have the Arabs coming from the south. You have the Ammonites coming from the east and the Ashdodites coming from the west. In other words, what the text makes clear here, and if you know the geography, you know this, he and his team, Nehemiah and his team, are surrounded on every side by opposition. Pressed in. And if you look at his situation and you start to say, man, that's rough. I know for me, I'm just grateful. I I really have opposition to the work I do. I don't encounter much opposition. Well, friends, that's likely because you aren't really doing anything worth opposing. I know that hurts to hear for some of us, but it's true. When God's people love Jesus, when they read the Bible, when they show up by the way they live, when they get on task with a team, forces will mount opposition to that that work. God tells us so. If it's just you and your business, if it's just you and your interests, the world and Satan are like, eh, don't need to oppose that. It's not going to do much damage. I want to tell you where opposition comes from and what it looks like. All right, first, where it comes from. Often comes from the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that oftentimes our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against one another, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This invisible world going on around us, and the way this often manifests itself is on the team itself, within a team, amongst one another. It's like the annoyances you think the other person can control. Or they're doing it on purpose to annoy you. Or you're on a team and someone makes an innocuous statement that causes offense even though none was intended. This is where the spiritual forces of evil, the invisible forces, start to work and create cracks and division. So it comes from the spiritual realm opposition. It also comes from outward, from the external, like with Sembalat here in the story of Nehemiah. There are people that don't like the living God to get in the way of their gods. You know what I mean by that? Everyone worships something. Everyone gives themselves to something in life. 
And the sooner we realize that, the easier our life will start to become because you're going to give yourself to something. And Sambalat had given himself to power, to money, to real estate. And when the living God gets in the way of that, uh, opposition comes from inward, from the worshipers of God like Tobiah. Tobiah, whose name means Yahweh is good in Hebrew, was likely a guy who worshipped, who went to church, worshipped God on Saturdays, even while he ridicules on Fridays. It's so sad, but in the church, even in God's church, we find people who wear reversible jerseys. One team one day, another color the next day. Worship Sundays, always questioning, insinuating, even ridiculing every other day of the week. This happens, and it happens because they want God worshipped in their way or in no way. And by the grace of God, we've been protected from that as the most part as a church, but it will happen at some point. People will put on the reversible jerseys. Finally, where opposition comes from, here's an interesting one. I'm calling it inward inertia. All right? And remember inertia from science class, all right, uh, physics? It's the resistance of any physical object to a change in its motion or its state of rest. A lot of us are familiar with inertia when we're watching a uh, football game on television. All right, we're very difficult I'm a very difficult person to move, all right? Uh, I can't help that. It's inertia, right? We understand that, that thing, but this happens also when working on something big. We roll with what's easiest and most convenient, don't we? There are oftentimes what's easiest and most convenient is the majority of what people are saying. Look with me here in verse 10, chapter 4. In Judah, it was said, so they're doing this great work around them, but most of the people are saying, Oh, the strength of those who bear the burns, it's failing. There's too much rubble. We can't build this wall. It's not going to happen. It's too much. And then look again in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them, so some time had passed, and here it comes again. Look, guys, you should really return to us. Return. Don't do this. It's dangerous. It's, you know, just make it easy on yourself. Opposition often happens in this way too, friends. It's not evil. It's not pernicious. It's not... Uh, dastardly. It's often just inertia. You know, and this comes in the form of saying things like, well, you know, it's good for other people. Not so much for me. What they're doing, it's a bit too much. It's really not my thing. I I wish we would just scale it back. Scale it back, right? Or, I think they're overdoing it. You know? I think he's overdoing it. This is where opposition often comes from. Now, what does it look like? We see in these verses, one, it looks like criticism that you're too idealistic. Look with me in verse 2. He said in the presence of his brothers, this was Sembalat, said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish that up in a day? He's mocking them. What do they think they're going to get this done in a day? They're working so hard. Come on. What are they going to make these stones come alive again and just multiply upon themselves. And Tobiah joins in and says, yeah, what are they building? And he kind of imagines this cartoon scene of a fox going on top of it, and everything crumbles down. They're joking. They're enjoying each other, having a good laugh. They're so naive and idealistic they think this can happen. 
When Igor Sikorsky was 12, his parents told him that competent authorities had already proved human flight impossible. In his American aeronautical plant, he posted a sign that read this. According to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of its body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. Of course, he went on to build the first helicopter. Knowing God, how much bigger ought we to dream and to pray and to not let people get in the way and opposition make us stumble? One of my favorite quotes you'll hear me throw out probably once a year is from a guy named A.W. Tozier, the author of The Pursuit of God, who our Sunday night uh, seven-mile community group right now is studying this great book. He says this, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. I love this next part. What a pity we plan only the things we can do ourselves. Isn't that a pity? As God's people, we just, we just try the things we can do by ourselves. We set our agenda book, I can do this, I can do this. That's unrealistic, let's not do that. then once God actually works against all odds, as we see what happens here in Nehemiah, what happens next? How does this opposition look? Jealousy. And specifically jealousy that gets violent. Look at verses 7 and 8 here. Zimbabwe, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard the repairing of the walls was going forward. And the breaches were beginning to be closed. There's progress. They were very angry. They plotted together to fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion to it. Look also in verse 11. Later they say, they won't know, they won't see it coming, but we're going to kill them. We're going to infiltrate, and we're going to kill them. Jealousy's ugly, to the point where it gets violent. People see success, people see God working, they get violent. So, doing something, building something together, receive a task and a team. You get to work. You're going to receive and encounter opposition. Finally, and this is a sermon in a nutshell this morning, overcome opposition through work and prayer. It's got to be both work and prayer. I want to share with you two scriptures about this. First, look with me in verse 9 here in Nehemiah. And we prayed to our God, in the midst of this opposition, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So it's not just that they prayed, they prayed and trained security guards. Right? They, they prayed and they worked. It's both. Now the, the sort of New Testament parallel to this comes in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 13, where Jesus says this. Go ahead and put that up. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works of that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Work and prayer. You see that? 
Consider with me for a moment here. Work without prayer and prayer without work. First, work without prayer. It exalts self and diminishes God. I once heard uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks tell a story of a young man and a former student of his in ministry who was having some trouble. And this man who resides in Atlanta, Georgia, who at the time resided in Atlanta, Georgia, called Dr. Hendricks. And he told him, hey, young man, you need some help. So he referred him to Charles Stanley, pastor in Atlanta. And after some reservation, this young man visited Charles Stanley. The first thing Dr. Stanley asked was, how is your prayer life? He said, well, yeah, you got me, Doc. It's not really too good. He said, in fact, it's pretty poor. I spend incredibly little time in prayer. Dr. Stanley just replied, how long have you had this problem with your ego? And man just stopped. Then his tracks replied, well, I've been struggling with that for a long time, but how did you know? He said, you know, remember I asked you the question, how was your prayer life? And you said you didn't have time for that. And that gave me evidence that you are a very, very arrogant man who feels that he can somehow pull off what he does by his own strength without spiritual enablement. And ladies and gentlemen, that man is here today. It's me. I'm just kidding. It's not me. <laughs> but it could have been at one point. Certainly. I mean, really, this can happen. <laughs> it wouldn't make a story better, would it? And honestly, it could happen at any time to me. It could be me. It could be you, right? It could be us. Work without prayer, striving, working hard, without depending on Jesus, without asking him for the help, without asking him to work through it, diminishes God and his glory. And he'll just run out of energy eventually. Number two, prayer without work. What happens then? You get empty spiritual feel-goods. It'll feel good about connecting with God. It'll feel nice, but eventually it becomes empty without the work of living it out. Andrew Murray's I want to read from this, this excerpt from Andrew Murray's uh, With Christ in the School of Prayer, which is available, actually on the back table back there if you want to read. It's wonderful. Speaking of John 14, 12 and 13, he says this. In these parting words, remember Jesus is about to go to the Father. This is his last speech before the disciples. So he says this. In these parting words of our blessed Lord, we find that he no less than six times repeats these unlimited prayer promises which has so often awakened our anxious questionings as to their real meaning. He says things like, whatsoever, anything, right? great promises through prayer, what ye will, ask and ye shall receive. How many a believer has read over these with joy and with hope and has sought to plead them for his own need, but he came out disappointed. The simple reason was this. I love this phrase. This is, of course, this is from the 19th century. He had rent away the promise from its surrounding. The Lord gave the wonderful promise of the free use of his name and prayer with the Father in connection with the doing of his works. I love that phrase. You rent the promise away from its surroundings. You, you tear it away. Lord, you say, be bold in prayer, whatever I ask for in your name. But the surrounding verses say, as you work, as you do these greater works, add these moments praying, and asking boldly. He goes on to say, prayer not only teaches and strengthens us to work, work teaches 
and strengthens us to pray. And it does. We know this from experience, right? You see God do things as you work, and that compels you to pray. So let me encourage you, as you work, pray together. This is a hard thing. Let's not lie. This is difficult. It's hard enough to serve, to love others, to be in fellowship, but then as you're doing a common task, and it's not a missions trip to Haiti, you pray together. Let me give you some practical tips for praying together. Number one, this is free. Do it. <laughs> all right? It's not up there. But just do it. I, you forget all the other practical tips I'm going to say if you're not going to do it. Take a moment. Get there early. Just, even if it's just one other person, hey, I just want to get us to start praying. You mind starting with me? Pray. It doesn't have to be long. Then when you pray, here's some practical tips. Make, a clear, make clear the goal of praying. doesn't mean you're not led by the Spirit. But just make a brief comment, you know, like, uh, let's pray for the people affected by this work. Or, let's pray for the workers. Let's pray for the work. Or, let's give praise to the one who makes the work effective. Another tip, pray according to the time you have. Don't hog prayer time if you've got three minutes before the children roll in. All right, for children's church or whatever it is. And you're, you're saying, thus saith in Genesis 3. Right, you know, and, and don't, don't hog the prayer time. Use everyday language, all right? Uh, it, use of providential substitutionary atonement does not bring more glory to God. These words, all right? Just say, Jesus died for me. So grateful. <laughs> use everyday language. Also, pray loud enough so others can hear. We do have some mumblers among us, all right? If you know you're a mumbler, do not bow your head when you pray, okay? Just an encouragement. No one will hear you. I seriously, I had someone one time I was praying with a group of people, and someone actually was praying that they had trusted their life to Jesus, and the rest of us didn't know. But we didn't know for two and a half weeks after that because they mumbled it. <laughs> As you pray and work gets harder, take a chance to honestly pray what others are thinking. As you begin to get comfortable praying with other people, take a chance to pray what others are honestly already thinking. Look at Nehemiah, verses 4 and 5. He says, says this, he prays this. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back the taunt on their own heads. Don't cover their guilt. They're provoking all these people. In other words, he's not praying, Lord, forgive them. Right? He's just being honest. Like, people are opposing this work, Lord. Do something. I, I, I feel like you got to do something to them. God will take care of it. Last tip. Let prayer spill into your work. Let the prayer spill into your work by exhorting and encouraging each other. And that's what Nehemiah also does here. Verse 14, what do we see him say? We see him say, I looked and arose and I said to all these people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Yeah! That's like one of these Braveheart speeches, right? Encourage one another with these kinds of words. When you pray together, also remember prayer together keeps us focused on the mission. We are so prone to give up on the mission if we get one negative email, one comment we perceive as a veiled criticism, right? Or, or a couple weeks of feeling underappreciated, and we automatically assume, oh, it must not be God's will for me anymore. Clearly, I'm not in his will. should stop. No. Pray. Ask God for the strength to keep you focused on the bigger mission that he's doing. My favorite verse, actually, in this passage is verse 15. It's the last verse we read this morning. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Now think about this. They experienced the agony of opposition. 
they experienced the pain and sacrifice of basically putting their 11-year-olds on a wall with spears. All right? That's sacrifice. We think about, like, oh, our kids are in children's ministry. I don't know. Or, you know, like, uh, I don't want to keep them with a babysitter all day. You know, they put their 11-year-olds on a wall with spears. All right? Then they see God win. Right? So what do they do? Yay! Let's cheer. Let's celebrate ourselves. No. It motivates them to more work. They get back on the wall and keep working. I love it. Because of the mission into the glory of God. That's what really happens, right? You see God work, and you just want, it's contagious. You want to be part of it. You want to do more. Now, we're drawing to the end of the sermon. The end of the sermon is drawing nigh. All right? And and for those of you trying to still figure out, well, how am I going to apply this to my life? You know, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I don't really see how this applies to me. Well, friends, it's likely because you don't have a team to work and pray with. Ouch, right? But I've been there, but you don't have a team to work and pray with. And don't say you have a team at the place of your employment. Believe me, love your coworkers, share Jesus with them, but they aren't praying with you to sustain a work towards a God-sized mission. Also, please don't say that you're surrounded by positive people. I just try to surround myself with positive. Don't say that. Positive thinking and positive energy is fine with a cup of coffee at your breakfast nook. You know why you read one of those daily calendars? That we live in a world in which the perverted nature of sin can perk up at any minute to blindside marriages, to devastate families, to crush friendships. And you add to that the unseen world where powers and principalities are at war. That's where we live. So where positive people are unable to help you, prayerful co-laborers can. So find a task and a team. We are at a critical point in the life of our church. We have finally begun to approach the 80-20 mark. Do you know what this is? Anyone? That's when 80% of the work is done by 20% of the church. I want to challenge us with this this morning because two years ago, no way this was possible. All right? We, it was like 80-80. 80 80% of the people did 80% of the work. We just didn't have enough people. Last spring, not possible even still, this past spring. If you were thinking about becoming part of this magical mystery tour, you knew you had a part to play just looking at the sheer numbers, people around you. But now we're getting closer to that 80-20. It's like 70-30 now. 80% of the work being done by 20% of the people because we have a healthy, functioning children's ministry that isn't begging for extra bodies at the door. All right, we, we have greeters scheduled every week, complete with lanyards. All right, uh, and, and, and rather than asking the first person who shows up to church, can you hand out bulletins, please? You know, kind of sheepishly. So if you've come over the past six months, you can look around and finally say, ah, oh, you know, like the big things are be, they're being taken care of. But they are not. Not the big things. Not the bigger things. Because there are people on this island or have moved to this island who have not yet been introduced to the true Jesus. Who have only been offered a phony Christianity full of guilt, external traditions, and a vague, never-ending grocery list of things you've got to do to be really good with God. That's what people often think of when they think of Christianity. There is mercy to be further extended to the marginalized. 
There is praise to his name that can resound yet further. There are children who otherwise never hear anyone explain to them God's rescue plan in words they can understand. There is this before us, a God-sized mission on a team with a task towards this God-sized mission. With opposition, with pain, but through prayer and a little bit of sweat, we can build something together, friends. Let's pray. Spirit, thank you for your challenge through Nehemiah this morning, Lord. What a, a lofty goal, this man who travels hundreds of miles. The threat of death to rebuild a wall to your glory. Lord, what do you want us to build? Even in the midst of opposition, please show us how to build, how to grow, how to use our gifts to serve one another, serve this community. Whether it's in community groups, children's ministry, greeting, coffee, uh, tech, worship, Georgetown Primary Hour, whatever it might be, Lord. Show us the task and the team you want us to be on if we're not. And when we are on that task and team, will help us not just work, but really pray together. It's messy. It's not comfortable. We might make it three to four minutes to start out with, Lord, but help us at least do that. Because we're going to encounter opposition, Lord. As your gospel goes forth, as people grow by grace, and they see what you're doing, we're going to encounter opposition because people don't like it, and Satan certainly doesn't. So when that happens, in the words of Hebrews 12, help us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we might not grow weary or lose heart. Amen.